Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I consider myself a nerd. (laughs) That is a good impression, but Jason is not a nerd. Uh, just, just, just FYI, he's not a genuine nerd as, right. uh, Toby Radloff would say. I like things out of nerd culture, but I think one of my strengths is I can float from group to group, Josh. That is true. You are, you are like a Renaissance man, a man of the people, something like that. Yeah, that's right. I am, I am, uh, as we have said before, a social butterfly sometimes, uh, unless I'm very antisocial, which I can also be. Anyway, let's do the episode of the show, shall we? (laughs) Let's do that. We're talking about the films of 2003 in this season. And in this episode, we are talking about the Grand Jury Prize winner at the Sundance Film Festival, which is American Splendor, featuring Toby Radloff, the genuine nerd, uh, both the genuine Toby Radloff and the version played by Judah Friedlander, uh, but mainly about Harvey P. Carr, the writer of underground comic books, uh, creator of American Splendor, the comic book, and as played by Paul Giamatti in this film, as well as appearing on screen himself in this sort of documentary fiction hybrid thing that's going on in this film from uh, writer-directors Robert Pulcini and Sherry Springer Berman, which is, uh, this is their first well, if, as we, if we call it a narrative feature, this is their first narrative. Uh, they, they worked in documentaries leading up to this. And uh, this film did win the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. Uh, it was also at Cannes, where it won the uh, Fipreski, I think that's how you pronounce it, the, the Critics' Prize, and uh, was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, which uh, it also won from the Writers Guild, the Best Adapted Screenplay Award. So highly acclaimed film. Uh, as well as a successful movie at the box office. I mean, this is a small scale film. It had a budget of $2 million, but it grossed $8.7 million at the box office. So that's a, that's a pretty good result for a movie at this level. And a movie that was originally not even intended to be released in theaters, that was originally made as an HBO film. And uh, executives at HBO, I think, saw something in this movie and decided it, it deserved to uh, be a bigger deal. Uh, which I think was a smart move. Uh, of course, now that would be the opposite. It would never, you know, we, the the it would be a big deal because it's released on HBO Max or whatever, and it would get the full uh, promotion. But at the time, that was sort of a, a leveling up to be released in theaters. And, and we kind of saw that last year, right before the pandemic with Bad Behavior, Corey Finley's movie, which uh, with Hugh Jackman, I think that would have had a nice little box office run. But they went to HBO and they were going to keep it on HBO and that was all there was to it. Right. That's Bad Education, the Corey Finley movie. What did um, I call it? Bad Behavior? Yes. Well, can I just tell you, Josh, I have bad behavior for not remembering the title Bad Education. It's been a, it's been a rollicking time since the pandemic, Josh. <laughs> yes, it's, it's been quite some time now, but we're still forgetting things. Um, but, but you're right about that. I mean, that's a movie that played that that premiered at festivals and was looking for distribution and that HBO paid a huge amount of money for so that they could put it just on HBO and not release it in theaters. So yeah, it, this is certainly sort of, maybe not the opposite, but uh, definitely not the trajectory that a, a film like this would necessarily have. But at the time, again, shows the confidence 
that these executives had, that they had something bigger on their hands. Uh, and they were right about that. And uh, this movie was highly, highly acclaimed by critics in addition to all its awards. And it was interesting to me uh, looking for reviews because it seemed like a lot of the critics, they spent a lot of time talking about the American Splendor comic book. It seemed like surprisingly large numbers of film critics were already familiar with Harvey Pekar and his comic books, which I guess maybe is not that surprising because if there's a kind of person who would identify with Harvey Pekar, it might be a film critic, I think. And why do you say that, Josh, as a film critic? What is, what is it that you relate to? Well, I mean, he's he's uh, he's a bit downtrodden. He's he's very self-critical. He's very pessimistic and cynical, but he's also very intellectual. I mean, that's the interesting thing about Harvey Pekar in general, I think, is that he's this kind of salt of the earth guy and he works this working class job and lives in this crappy apartment. But he, you know, reads highbrow literature and he listens to jazz. I mean, he himself is a critic. It doesn't really there's there's some brief mentions of it in the movie, but he was a highly accomplished music critic, a jazz critic, uh, writing for newspapers in Cleveland. So yeah, I think uh, all of that is 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 identifiable amongst many people who are film critics. I would agree. He's a misanthrope, but at the same time, he appreciates great art. He doesn't necessarily connect with people as he'd like to, but he has a longing to. And I think there's a great scene where Joyce first comes in and he takes her to like an Applebee's type restaurant, some type of kitschy theme flair restaurant that's totally corporate. And she's totally unhappy. And she goes, I never imagined you would eat at a place like this. And he goes, I wouldn't. I thought you would like it. Right. But the charm isn't in those places. It's in the places that he would normally go to. Right. Right. That he somehow thinks wouldn't be good enough for her when he's trying to impress this woman. Um, because he has this this constant sense of like his own lack of self-worth. Um, but of course, that's why she likes him, um, because she's read in his comics about his life and she is drawn to that. So I assume they never go back to that restaurant. Also, she gets food poisoning. So well, presumably. Yeah. But Josh, you as a critic, tell us more about your lack of self-worth. <laughs> let's not. Let's hear from <laughs> let's hear from Roger Ebert, who said who who definitely was was one of these who was familiar with uh, with the comic and with Harvey Pekar, also from his David Letterman appearances in the 1980s. Roger Ebert said, the peculiarity and genius of American Splendor was always that true life and fiction marched hand in hand. There was a real Harvey Pekar who looked very much like the one in the comic book and whose own life was being described. Now comes this magnificently audacious movie in which fact and fiction sometimes coexist in the same frame. This film is delightful in the way it finds its own way to tell its own story. There was no model to draw on, but Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, who wrote and directed it, have made a great film by trusting to Picar's artistic credo, which amounts to what you see is what you get. Movies like this seem to come out of nowhere, like freestanding miracles. But American Splendor does have a source, and its source is Harvey Picar himself, his life and what he has made of it. This guy is the real thing. And I mean... All credit to Harvey Pekar, but I feel like some of these reviews, especially from people who are very familiar with the comic, almost downplay the filmmakers who, you know, really rise to the challenge of adapting something that is in a lot of ways unadaptable. I love that sequence where Crumb first, who obviously we've talked about Crumb in our uh, documentary episode, Crumb from 1984, Robert Crumb takes 19, on- 1994. That's what I meant, 94. I knew that one. That's just me misspeaking. Daddy went out a little too late last night. So, <laughs> but I knew that was 94. I'm not going to take the hit on that one. 
Uh, anyway, but thank you, Josh. Where he start where he starts drawing the comics, you know, based on the uh, kind of stick figure drawings and captions that uh, Picard gives him, and then you're seeing those kind of meld from real life into the comics, you know. So you're seeing the Picard character played by Giamatti, not played by Picard. So there's a lot of going on in here. But Picard is walking down the street, and he has a thought of you know, how bad humanity is. And then you see that flash into the comic. And I thought that was a really, really effective way to show the adaptation um, and to show the birth of the comic. Right. And I think, I mean, there's so many layers to like the representation of Harvey Picar. I mean, we've got the real guy in the documentary footage. We've got Paul Giamatti playing him. We've got drawings from the comic that kind of come to life at different points. And that are different themselves. You know, when he's drawn by different artists, he looks differently and we see various views of him in the movie. And we even have that one brilliant scene where Harvey and Joyce, played by Paul Giamatti and Hope Davis, go go to see the play, the stage play of American Splendor, where they're watching actors playing Harvey and Joyce. And we are watching actors playing the actors who played Harvey and Joyce in uh, in this play. So uh, and it's uh, Molly Shannon and and Donald Logue who play those characters, which I mean, I almost like flashed on like, you know, an alternate version of this movie where Donald Logue and and Molly Shannon were the stars of it, which, you know, also could have been interesting. I, it could have been interesting, but obviously Giamatti and Hope Davis just home runs with their performances. I think this might be like my favorite of both of their performances of anything in their filmographies. Yeah, they're great. I didn't mean to imply that they're not great. They are. And I, I don't think that other version would be better. I was just imagining that it could have existed and, and could have been good. And that's that's kind of the genius of the movie is that it's got all these different conceptions of itself that, that kind of all come together. I agree. And Josh, there's also that scene where, um, you know, Harvey and Joyce have never met. This is pre-internet days, obviously. And Harvey's, you know, they're talking on the phone and they've already written letters and Harvey's trying to convince her to come visit uh, him in Cleveland. And he goes, and she goes, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good idea, Harvey. And he says, why not? And he goes, well, different artists draw you in different ways. So I don't really know what you look like. And I don't know what I'm getting, you know? And I thought that was a really kind of honest uh, statement because she is obviously attracted to the intellect and the personality, but there has to be a physical thing there too. Right. And of course, when she arrives and she's in the bus station waiting for him to meet her, uh, we see her imagining all the different versions of him from the comics, some of which are looking kind of hideous and some of which look kind of appealing. And she's just sort of wondering which version she's going to get until he finally shows up. So, yeah, I think they they do a great job of of combining all that stuff. And that's a difficult thing to do. Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly was more appreciative of that. She said, American Splendor presents Picar as drawn on the page, Picar as brilliantly interpreted by Paul Giamatti, and the actual Picar in the double role of narrator and interview subject, sometimes all at once. Such moments are enough to make a movie lover bark out loud, exultant, just as the author in his comic books discovered an original way to honor the challenges of everyday life, so have Berman and Pulcini, documentarians by profession, come up with an inventive new movie hybrid that is its own formal breakthrough. Rarer yet, for all the elegance and verve of their solution, the filmmakers keep the focus on the characters, indeed on the casual heroism of the ordinary, which is the profound revelation of the whole meta Picar project. Yet don't get precious about their production team's own superb craft. So, I, yeah, I think she's giving them the credit 
that they deserve here that, and maybe they, because they had made documentaries in the past. And I think I saw one quote from them where they were basically like, well, we didn't really know any other way to make this movie. But regardless of why, I think they really, they, they found the exact right way to make the movie. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's so much of, not so much, but a good part of the charm, you know? Um, because like, you know, there is a quote from the filmmakers were like, well, once we started interviewing Harvey P. Carr, we knew we had to have him in the movie. Right. And, right. and then you see him alone and he's, um, again, a char charismatic character that you want to watch. And then him and Joyce together. So it's, it's so interesting to watch their relationship. You're like, these two are in love, you know, but like, <laughs> but not in a bad way. You're not, you're not like, oh, they dislike each other. You're like, they're so comfortable with each other. They just put, you know, put up with each other in the best possible way. Um, but I agree. And I was thinking about it, you know, I haven't seen a movie that has touched this in this form of mixing documentary and kind of narrative and animation, you know, done as effectively since then. I mean, I was thinking of like the big short when they had to do all those sequences where they brought in the real people to explain what actually happened, right? And it was like, I get it, but this is the most effective version and they're the creators of it, I guess. So kudos to them. Yeah, it's a tough thing to pull off, I think. And, and you could watch this movie and think, oh, this is such a brilliant approach to the material. And, you know, someone else should approach a, a true story kind of movie that way too. And someone else might not be able to do it. So we usually see it in reverse, right? We see it as a documentary and then we see the dramatizations or the animations. And then this is a narrative film that's incorporating the documentary and the animation. So it's a really cool play on a form. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, what they could have also done is when they met Harvey and Joyce and thought that they were so great, they could have said, you know what, we're just going to make a documentary and forget about the narrative aspect. But they really, they make both parts of it, as Lisa Schwartzbaum says, they're both like equally valuable and important. And, and, you know, we, we usually, like you said, think of a movie being kind of one with a little bit of the other or one way or the other. And, and this one is, is both sort of in a balance. So that's good. Yeah, you're right, Josh, because they, since they are such interesting characters and there's totally enough to do a feature length and, um, you know, as we saw with Crumb, right, that would have been, that would have been fine. That would have been a good movie. So I actually think it was really gutsy to do it this way. Right, right. So Manola Dargis in the LA Times uh, was another one who was obviously very familiar with the comic and she was overall positive, but felt like this movie kind of fell short from what she thought of in the, in the comic book. Uh, she said, the filmmaker's prankish visual style works far better when it serves the comic's deeper truths, like the scene when Joyce sees all the cartoon Harveys at the train station. American Splendor is about a cheap, ill-tempered schlub but it's also about how we cling to our human selves, our individuality, even as the world tries to smash us to pieces. As Picar muses in one of the comics, who is Harvey Picar? The question lies at the heart and troubled soul of the comic, but it's easy to imagine that the filmmakers, who probably felt that they were already out on a limb with such a down-and-out anti-hero, didn't want to alienate the audience by letting Harvey's multiple personalities rip. So instead of the fractured Harvey, they give us a grumpy but fundamentally decent guy with a couple of cartoon personalities and a comically harridan wife. And mm. I think she's really being overly harsh, but I'm not, you know, a devoted American Splendor comic book fan. So um, 
I did see at least one person on Letterboxd also mentioning that this movie had kind of toned down the political aspects of Harvey P. Carr's work. And we get a little bit of that in the scene where he kind of crashes and burns on the David Letterman show, but that's about it. Well, I can see that. And I know he's written some political, you know, books, not just in the comics, but actual books that focus on it. But I mean, you know, it's a it's a movie that's like an hour and 40 minutes. How much can you fit in there? Right, right. And I, I do think that 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 Manola Jarjus here is kind of nitpicking. And and I think she's she's going a little too far to claim that this is a sort of like sitcom version of Harvey Picar. I, I don't think that that's the case at all. And I think this is an accessible movie that that people who aren't familiar with the comics or or with underground comics in general could still enjoy. But I don't think it's a movie that's dumbing itself down. Josh, how familiar were you with these comics uh, before you saw the movie? Uh, before I saw the movie, for the first time, I was not familiar with the comics at all. Um, and subsequently, I I do have, in fact, I'm pretty sure as a promotion for the movie, maybe at award season or something, I got an American Splendor, like a big kind of omnibus collection of a bunch of American Splendor issues that had like a, you know, a new cover with Paul Giamatti on it that I, I that I ended up reading. So so since the movie, since I saw the movie the first time, I have read some American Splendor. I mean, I think I just read that because I had gotten it for free and it was enjoyable, um, but I didn't necessarily decide, oh, I need to read all of Harvey P. Carr's work. And the thing about that too, uh, the comics that the movie really needs to change is the comics are very episodic. There are a lot of just little short vignettes of like, here's something I did today. And there are a handful of pages. And so to craft that into a feature length narrative is another challenge that these filmmakers have. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I, I liked the movie. And this was, again, since we always talk about it, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but it would have been on video uh, at the time when I worked at Blockbuster. So I, you know, this is definitely one we all knew about and wanted to watch. So I think that was easy to do. The other thing is uh, the first time I saw it, I wasn't, you know, I'm not a comic guy per se, and it didn't make me want to read it. But after this time, I definitely want to read some of this stuff. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. And it's it's more, you know, we talked about about Crumb, the documentary and Crumb's work is a lot more uh, abrasive and kind of weird and in your face. And the Picard stuff is very much it is down to earth. It is just about like a lot of the things like you see in the movie. Like I went to the grocery store and I was trying to figure out which line to get in and things like that. But but it draws you in. So yeah, I think I saw this movie, I'm pretty sure in in the theater, you know, possibly at a press screening at the time that it came out. And I remember liking it a lot um, and, and liked it a lot again this time as well. Dave, did you see this when it came out? I'm sure I did. I don't remember if it was in the theater or not, uh, but yeah, it was definitely something that I, I really liked at the time, but I'd never revisited until now. And I'm, I really loved it this time. Did you ever read any uh, American Splendor comics? I've never really been a comic book guy, so no, not not at all. Do you yeah. know how to read? <laughs> not very well. <laughs> well, comic books are helpful because they have pictures. You yeah, know? that's true. You can figure a lot of it out without the reading, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Are you good at interpreting pictures? Sometimes. Well, I mean, he does host a movie podcast, so hopefully he is. <laughs> well, they talk to him on the, you know, the movies they talk, Josh. Or he just they talk to me. Watch the, watch the pictures. Let's yeah. move on. We've downgraded Dave's intellect quite a lot here in the last couple <laughs> minutes. Uh, any other background you want to mention on this movie, Jason? I mean, like you said, tons of awards, tons of lists at the end of the year, right? So, and uh, Josh, I think, uh, uh, as sadly we know, Harvey Picard died, what, about 
10 years ago, I'd say at this point in time. Yeah, he died in 2010. So he did get a chance to sort of experience the success of the film and, and the renewed attention that it brought to his work. But yeah, he did pass away. And on his gravestone, it says, life is about women, gigs, and being creative, which is a great quote. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, uh, certainly a, a fitting epitaph that, you know, anyone could aspire to. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on American Splendor. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we're talking about Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, American Splendor. And we've talked a lot about the, the combination of the documentary form and the narrative form that this movie does, which, as, as we're saying, I think is just, is just so brilliant. And But let's talk about, I mean... Just because that's brilliant, don't that doesn't discount the the great acting, the great performances in this movie. Um, Paul Giamatti is so good, and this was a big breakthrough for him. And I, I was sort of surprised that you know he didn't get an Oscar nomination for this movie or Sideways later, which I just had assumed he had. But I feel like he's maybe a little underrated, Paul Giamatti. At this, point. I agree with you, and I love him in this. And a lot of the stuff I love is you know he's created. Or his take on this character, which is um, an accurate interpretation, shall we say, right? Like it's, you know, you're never going to do a quote unquote impression because then it's not real. So you're interpreting it. And I think he does that in a great way. But the Picard character is a big character, right? It's a larger than life character. And it would be so easy for him to go over the top with that. But he's his facial expressions when people are talking to him are brilliant, you know, and like, you know, when Crumb first asks him, like, uh, if he can animate some of the, you know, uh, draw some of the stories that he did. And he's just like, yeah, man. And he just like, you know, you, should, you see this face of like, like, I did it. And there's this pride and I never thought this would happen. It's just it really gets so much out of his facial expressions. And uh, yeah, he just he's he's great. I agree with you. He is underrated. Like, I want to see him in everything. Yeah, uh, and he's name I a mean, thing. Not... Name a thing, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Anything we yeah. want to see him on Awesome Movie Year, right? We'll get him in. Yes, he'll uh, he'll play one of us, and then we'll comment on it, and uh, <laughs> it'll be brilliant. Um, yeah, I think you're right. The facial expressions are great, and also the voice. You know, there's a whole thing, like especially at the be at the beginning of the movie when it first introduces him. The first stuff we see is this whole bit about how he's lost his voice because he just yells at people all the time and he's damaged his vocal cords. And, and that, that, that sort of strained voice, it continues. And it's obviously some kind of affliction that he has throughout his life. And when he gets agitated, he starts losing his voice again. And, and I think Giamatti really, I mean, he has his own voice, of course, Giamatti, and it's a distinctive sounding voice, but he really captures that sound of Harvey Picar and and the way that it it sort of strains it just to to get words out um so it, it's it's very much and and Harvey himself uh, in the narration at one point says oh this guy doesn't look anything like me and that's fair but at the same time you see in this movie the real Harvey and Paul Giamatti and you have no trouble connecting them to being the same person well and that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is you know they do a lot of these kind of interviews on this white, just white background soundstage, and they move props in and out for the interviews, right? And there's one scene where you see Giamatti and Judah Freelander 
watching um, Harvey and Toby, the real Harvey and Toby. And they both kind of stay in character, right? You know, Toby, Judah Freelander just looks ahead emotionless. And meanwhile, uh, Paul Giamatti is so uh, in love with watching Harvey Picard talk. It's it's just great, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. And you can tell that he is really immersed in that in that character, in that person. Um, and the other performance, I mean, Hope Davis is great. She kind of, you know, she doesn't come in until, I don't know if it's quite halfway through the movie, but there's there's a lot yeah. of movie before before she shows up. And she really invigorates it. Not that it isn't good, but I think she brings it to another level and the relationship between Harvey and Joyce really deepens this beyond just this kind of, again, episodic story, maybe more like the comics where it's just, here's some random events from Harvey's life. Hope Davis, who, as as I continue to extol on every podcast, The Day Trippers, I love the film and she's oh, great yeah. in it, right? Mm. But I think structurally, it makes so much sense where they bring her in because a lot of the time you might say, oh, she's coming in late as a love interest. But like Harvey Picard is so set in his ways and we need that. We need to see how comfortable he is and everything, you know, um, with who he is and, and his own lifestyle. And she doesn't necessarily upend it, but she just, you know, when you coexist with someone, you have to make changes. And that is just too much for him in a lot of ways. And it's too much for her in a lot of ways. Right. And um, yeah, I really like it. I really like the way they built that relationship. Uh, Josh, I did want to go back. You're talking about Oscar nominations from that year for actor in the leading role. Who would you take out, Josh? As I ask, as if I don't know. Sean Penn, Mystic River, he won it, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the oh Black Pearl. God. Ben Kingsley, House of Sand and Fog, which is a great underrated movie, and he's always I good. hate I hate that movie. Did you hate him in it? I just hated everything about it, I remember. <laughs> uh, Jude Law, Cold Mountain. This is a terrible category. <laughs> and Bill Murray, Lost in Translation, you would leave in there. Yeah, I'll take all the rest of them out, I think. Honestly. Yeah, you'd leave Sean Penn in, right? I, get, I mean, I liked Mystic River at the time, and I haven't seen it since, but I remember that every performance in that movie is just really overwrought. It's like a lot of acting. But sure, I guess. I, I liked that movie at the time. And it's, it's, it's so funny to remember how Pirates of the Caribbean was this, like, acclaimed thing, and it was a big comeback for Johnny Depp, I guess, at the time, and people thought of it. It's Now it's just such a caricature. And also, he became the lead of that franchise, but he's really a supporting character in that first movie, so he shouldn't have been in the best actor category anyway. This is really all not relevant to American Splendor, but... Well, you brought um, it up, you know? That's right. Funny. No, I just uh, mean that Paul Giamatti <laughs> doesn't get his due, you know? And, no, and I, I agree. I, I would say that the uh, nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay was a much stronger category. City of God, Mystic River, Seabiscuit, Return of the King. Yeah, that's a tough one to uh, to break through. And but I think, again, deservedly so. And for all the reasons that we've been talking about, about how difficult an adaptation this is and how delicately they balance everything, that screenplay is is a big deal. Of course, Harvey Picard did not read it. And <laughs> apparently in that great early scene where he's reading the narration and they ask him, did you read the script? And he's like, well, I kind of looked through it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, you I mean, know, in his defense, great. you know, like he's had plenty of media experience and media appearances and they've already adapted his uh, work into a play. Right. So I'm sure he didn't read the theatrical play before he went to see it either. Right. 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 And it's not I mean, I'm not 
trying to criticize him necessarily. I mean, that's one of the funny moments of the movie because it's very, you can get his personality just in that answer. And that comes early in the film. And I would imagine that a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the narration in this movie comes directly from his comics anyway. So they're using his own words. I also, since we talked about the actors, which we were going to do, I mean, Tudor Freelander, like we've never seen him as good. And, uh, you know, that's a character, but it, it made me think like, why can't we see him play other types of characters, you know? And I love James Urbaniak as uh, as Robert Crumb. I thought that was a very good performance. And, you know, the last thing I saw him in was Difficult People on Hulu, where he's kind of uh, more of this whimsical character. And I, I want to see more. I want to see more James Urbaniak, who works constantly. But this was a memorable role for him. Yeah. And I think, well, Judah Freelander especially, and I don't know how well known he was at this point, but he became famous and now he just plays Judah Friedlander, you know, in, sure. in in movies. And I mean, he was on 30 Rock for years and I love 30 Rock, but he basically just plays himself. And even when they when he gets cast as characters, a lot of the time you see him and he dresses like Judah Friedlander and he's got his little hats with phrases. That's his kind of like bit. And no matter what movie he's in or show he's on, he's just that guy. And so he really does immerse himself to the point where watching this movie, I had seen his name in the opening credits. And then Toby showed up and I was like, oh, who's that actor? And then it took me a second to realize, oh, that's Judah Friedlander playing that character because he is really immersing himself. And it's such a ridiculous character. That's another thing is that Judah Friedlander comes on screen as Toby and you're like, oh, he's really got to be exaggerating this guy. And then the real Toby comes on and it's like, nope, he did it exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> no, I don't remember great performance. Toby from the MTV ads back in the day. Do you guys? No, I think that plus the Letterman appearances, I think I was just a little too young to have been watching that Agreed. stuff at the time. Dave, did you see any of that? I remember him on Letterman at least once, uh, once or twice. But yeah, I, I didn't remember the MTV stuff, though. Yeah, uh, I I was sort of surprised that I didn't. But then I realized it's, you know, because they're not always giving you the exact year of things as this movie goes on. But yeah. if it was, it was all kind of in the early to mid 80s. And I think I was too young to be watching MTV at that point. Josh, how about, you know, we always talk about environment. It really does show a good, real blue-collar Cleveland feel here, doesn't it? It does. It definitely makes you never want to go to Cleveland. I, uh, <laughs> at least not live there. There's an episode of um, Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain where he does a Cleveland uh, show, and he goes and interviews Picar, and that was nice to see. I remember after, it was a few years after the movie came out, and it was kind of nice to see that was still going and, and everything, and he was still Harvey Picarring. That's cool. I would like to see Anthony Bourdain and Harvey Picar. I bet that's great. Um, yeah, and and to to sort of go to the Cleveland uh, aspect of it, Joyce, of course, who's from Delaware, which sounds about as exciting as Cleveland. Um, and when when Harvey asks her if she would mind, you know, moving from Delaware to Cleveland, and she says something great about how like all large American cities are soulless in the same way or something. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're talking about Delaware, we have to go to Wayne's World with the great. We're in yes. Delaware, although it does have some nice beaches, I'll say that. And it is the birthplace of Capriati's, which we've all enjoyed over time. Um, That's true. But Cleveland is a very blue collar city. It's, um, you know, I haven't been in 20 years, probably at least maybe more. But, you know, the food scene's coming up and the sports teams are coming up sometimes. And so they're doing all right. Yeah. And it's the it's the home of it's the hometown of Harvey Picar. So. But, and you're saying it like, oh, it makes you not want to go to Cleveland. But I'm saying in like 
you could see the way that this town helped shape this individual. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that is essential to, to Harvey Picar is, is being from that kind of town. That's not only a blue collar working class background, but he lives in a city that is known for sort of not being notable. You know, you don't yeah. think of Cleveland and are like, oh, Cleveland is the city of whatever. Cleveland is just like a place. And so I think that goes with just like his job where he's a file clerk is the most generic job you can think of, the kind of job that robots now do. Um, and that's that's what Harvey Picar is. So, yeah, absolutely. It, it gets that. And I, I feel like uh, if there isn't a statue of Harvey Picar in Cleveland, there should be. Yeah, you're right. And as a file clerk, he was offered promotions and always turned them down. So you, you get in your comfort zone and, and you stay there. How does that sound to you, Josh? Yeah, I know. I can identify with that. Uh, certainly. <laughs> a lot of uh, ways to identify with Harvey Picar from a uh, perspective of, of me and other film critics. We got to talk about one other scene, uh, which again, to me, I felt like it was kind of, I get why the tone had to change when he had cancer, like it had to go down a little, but I thought I didn't enjoy that stuff as much and not because of the cancer. I just didn't think it, uh, you know, had the energy, which maybe because it was all um, of his sickness and everything, you know, of the rest of the movie. But then he passes out and he's got this dream sequence where he says, I'm Harvey P. Carr. I looked in the phone book and there's another Harvey P. Carr. And he goes through this list of Harvey P. Cars and who they are and what they did and how they became Harvey P. Cars. And it's surreal. And you could totally see an executive saying, cut the dream sequence, you know, but man, is it awesome. Yeah, I agree. That is a great, great. And that's just Giamatti delivering a monologue in front of a green screen and is doing an amazing job of it. And I think that balances what you're saying. The cancer stuff, it is serious and we lose a bit of his sarcastic sense of humor and it's downbeat, but not in a funny way. And I think that's a great counterpoint to that, that if, if, if we're getting close to feeling like, oh, this movie is too sad or too depressing or has gone too far from its original tone, here's something to bring it back. And maybe Harvey can't deliver this monologue at the moment because he's uh, very, very sick, but imaginary, you know, dream Harvey can deliver this monologue. And so it's, it's put in there perfectly. Um, but yeah, that's, it's very funny and it's, it's a fascinating story. And it's also this existential musing on who are we, who are any of us? Um, so I, Absolutely. That is a great sequence. What, one other uh, thing about the movie that I really liked, as son of a world-famous record collector, um, <laughs> I thought that this movie really depicted uh, record collectors or just collectors in general in a really, really authentic way that I haven't seen in too many other movies. Packrat and hoarding and obsessive. Everything. And, and every item is, is so important and completely uh, valuable and ways that no one else could possibly understand. Yeah, I like yeah. it. The, I like it the beginning where uh, they're talking about rock music and he's like, you know, rock's not bad. It's got its positives. It's not jazz, but it's got its positives. <laughs> and, and the collecting, there's a great running gag that starts when Harvey's, I think it's just his girlfriend, not his previous wife, but, you know, someone that he's been living, this woman he's been living with at the beginning of the movie, she's leaving and she's packing her stuff. And he grabs this really ugly looking like bronze sculpture and he takes it and he won't let her take it with her. And that thing stays in the apartment all throughout the movie. 
And there's at least one other scene where Joyce is trying to clean up and she's also trying to get rid of this awful sculpture and he grabs it back out and puts it back on the shelf. And it's it's not, you know, they're not drawing too much attention to it, but it really gives you that sense of of, of who he is. So it's interesting, the, the Joyce thing, maybe it was like they said it was, but I found that hard to believe that she would come in, have that bad of a night, see how horrible his apartment looks, and then go, I think we should skip the courting. Let's just get married. That that seemed a little unbelievable to me. I mean, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have done that if that wasn't the way that it really happened, because it seems unbelievable yeah. that you 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 have to back that up by by saying that that's how it really went. And And I kind of believed it because she... As much as she's portrayed as maybe a little more stable in some ways and she brings some balance to his life, she is not right? Josh. She's just as crazy as he is, yeah. and so I totally bought that she would do that. And in a weird way, if they had, if she had come in and they had had a totally boring, pleasant night, she wouldn't have said that. But because they went through this harrowing experience right away, she's like, "No, we need to get married. This is what has to happen." Yeah, I believed uh, it. She's just she just diagnoses herself more than he does, right? Yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to say, when I was watching it, like you know, because as someone who does write screenplays a lot of the time, when I'm writing something, especially mainstream thing, it's well, where's the conflict? And like in this film, there isn't much conflict. Obviously, he has to go through the cancer battle, um, but. Who cares? This is so good. You know, I just I that's why that note sometimes just bothers me because of movies like this that are just so good and they're able to just tell stories about characters and keep you enthralled the whole time. Yeah. And I think adding conflict would be so antithetical to the entire like philosophy right. of RVP cars right. work that he would have revolted and, and not agreed to participate because the whole point and again if you read the comics it's it's even more like this where this story is harvey went to the grocery store the end um and, <laughs> and that's and it's great so i i think i think you're right and you could imagine maybe if this movie again because it was originally just supposed to be an hbo tv movie if this movie had been bankrolled at a at a higher level somehow that studio executives would have meddled with it in that way and it would have been worse because of it Hey, Josh, before we rate it, I wanted to uh, go over two alternative versions of this. In the okay. 80s, Jonathan Demi tried to uh, adapt it and couldn't figure it out. But, you know, Jonathan Demi's an all-time great. That would have been a thing. Yeah, I think so, that would have been uh, excellent, yeah. Yeah, and he's, all, he's very good with kind of blue-collar stories also, you know. Um, and then uh, a, a person who uh, lobbied for the role, Josh, of Harvey Picard, one Mr. Rob Schneider. <laughs> oh boy <laughs> trying to imagine the version of this movie that's i would i like i said i would have definitely preferred the version that starred like donald logue versus uh who's maybe not the greatest actor but donald logue's a good actor i think he's, he's fine no he's fine he's no paul giamatti but he's fine yeah. but um yeah rob schneider wow i'm just thinking of all the fake rob schneider movies from south park you know rob schneider <laughs> is is the carrot <laughs> yeah. in American Splendor? Yeah. Other funny or is he's a file clerk and, and Toby making copies, the Tobeister yeah. at the copy machine, Toberomos. And who would have played like who would we get like Melanie Hutzel as Joyce or something in the, the Rob Schneider version? Colleen from uh Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank goodness we never saw that. That would have been uh not an awesome movie year episode, probably. But what Not we did right. see 
is an excellent film here, Josh. So yes, we should we rate it. What do you want to rate it out of? I don't know. Out of different uh, versions of Harvey Picar? Five. Okay. I was going to say ornate Col- Coleman albums. So, okay, we'll take that. Yeah, we didn't we did we didn't give enough due to the the Harvey Picar's love of jazz. Well, so. Picar would appreciate that. Yeah, and he uh, you know he was very concerned of where his ornate Coleman album was. That mm-hmm. That's Joyce true. Yeah, what Joyce can't can't let Joyce throw away yeah. the ornate Coleman. You know, album. we gotta say, I'm sorry, I, I, I do, we do have to make one more point. The stuff, okay. the the subplot with Joyce wanting kids and him not wanting kids and how a kid comes into their life is lovely and it works out perfectly and it's not heavy handed or overwrought as you like to say it just happens and it's great yeah Mm -hmm. i agree i mean and as someone who is very anti-kid i i loved that harvey first off when he meets joyce tells her i've had a vasectomy (laughs) and 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 i feel like there's there's certainly the pattern in a lot of hollywood movies that we almost get to at the point where, you know, he tells her that and he's very adamant and she says, okay. And then she starts, there's a scene of her looking at some mother holding a kid and that's a very mainstream Hollywoody thing to do. And you start to think, oh, uh oh, what is, how are they gonna handle this? And are they gonna sort of turn Harvey into this uh, softy or whatever? But they don't, I mean, and obviously again, just like everything else, it's handled in the way that it really happened. But I think you're right that that the kid comes into their life in a way that doesn't, discount either of them as people, either Harvey or Joyce, they kind of come to it in their own unique way. And the kid is obviously the right fit for these weirdos because she's a weirdo too. There's that, in the end, there's a great scene of Joyce and Danielle, like they're ice skating, right? And Harvey's in the stand, like eating a hot dog. And he just, they kind of look over and he gives them like a, like a pump, uh, uh, like a, I think it's like more of like a fist, in the air of like approval and it's it's it, it almost brought a tear to my eye because it was it was right they just did it right you know yeah so out of five ornate colvin albums josh i'm at three and a half very close to four on this one yeah i'm with you i mean we've been very positive and i think deservedly so i might bump it up to four after our discussion this is a really good movie so uh dave what would you say i'm right there at four so all right yeah, a good and maybe kind of underrated at this point, you know, a movie that that's not me- remembered as much as it should be. It's funny because yeah. we talk about um, films that we discover on this show, and this was one that we rediscovered, right? Um, yeah. That maybe we, we well, because it was a Sundance winner and we knew we were going to cover it, we didn't even consider it for a personal pick, but like, this would have been a great personal pick. Yeah. So we'll uh, come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of American Splendor. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we've been talking about Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner, American Splendor. And as far as the legacy goes, I mean, as we were just saying, this is a movie that maybe doesn't get enough attention anymore. I mean, obviously won at Sundance the year it came out. It was nominated for an Oscar. But I feel like it's not a movie that people talk about or revisit as much, and and it should be. Yeah, and, but that's kind of the fun of rediscovering it for us, right? This would be, uh, if video stores were still around, it would be, you know, a Josh's pick or like, hey, you <laughs> like this, now you got to check this out, right? I right. agree. This is a fun movie to discover or rediscover, and it deserves, obviously, a lot of uh, praise and and watch it. It's on uh, HBO Max at the time of 
this recording. And if you have HBO Max, we recommend you watch it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you maybe didn't see it or it just kind of passed you by back then, you haven't thought about it, check it out. Um, also, you know, check out some American Splendor comics. Like I said, I, I enjoyed reading those. Um, Harvey Picar continued to create comics, uh, including a graphic novel called Our Movie Year that he worked on with Joyce that was all about the experience of making this movie and the attention that it brought to them and the promotional cycle and all that stuff, which I don't think I've read that one. But, um, you know, just like anything, that was what was going on in Harvey's life. So that was what he wrote about in his next comic book. And as we said, he passed away in 2010, but left quite a body of work. And, uh, and Joyce Brabner has continued uh, to kind of uh, curate and uh, manage the legacy of, of Harvey Picar's work and is herself a writer as well, more of a kind of political and academic writer, but uh, continues to work in comics uh, as well as I think in, in prose. And uh, I was trying to find anything about their kid, if she herself is, is uh, an artist or creator of any kind. And there, I couldn't find much, uh, and not anything recent. Um, so I'm not sure what she's been up to, if anything. But it seems like maybe she'd uh, be trying to carry on the legacy of Harvey Picar. Right. Well, her biological father is a well-known comic book artist, too. So she's got it all the way through, right? No, that is one thing I think that was changed in the movie that where she's a she's the the child of an artist who works on a Harvey Picar comic and I think in reality it was just a friend of theirs who was a musician maybe. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so I don't know if that's the case, but she certainly I mean what I read was when she was talking about, you know, and the reason that she kind of uh gravitated toward them is because she had those artistic interests and they nurtured them where her, you know, she wasn't really getting that kind of support um in her you know, the instability of the family that she had been growing up in. So um, I think at least when she was maybe, uh, you know, a teenager or in her early 20s, I mean, that was where I found some interviews with her and Joyce where she talked about wanting to follow in those footsteps, but I don't know if she actually has. We talked about Paul Giamatti, underrated. I was, I was so certain that he had been nominated for an Oscar for Sideways that I was like writing that in my notes and then looked it up and I realized he had not been. And Paul Giamatti, however, was nominated for an Oscar for Cinderella Man. Yeah, Cinderella well, Man. He's good in Cinderella Man. You're, you're, I liked you're, a minute. you're taking the, the piss out of Cinderella Man. It's not a bad movie. No. I yeah, it's fine. I, I like as much as I I like Paul Giamatti. I completely forgot he was even in that movie. Was he not like that a I, trainer or something? I don't. Remember. Yeah, yeah, he's like Russell Crowe's trainer, I yeah. think. And I'm sure he is good, but. I mean, if I was, if you asked me what movie got Paul Giamatti an Oscar nomination, sure. that would not that be the one I would have answered. Well, I, yeah. I, you know, I'd have to look up his filmography also, but I, didn't he do, I mean, he was great in private parts, which kind of broke him, right? And then, um, he, did he do like a, a Saving Private Ryan or a big war movie at one point in time? I feel like he was Maybe. very good in one of those, but he's, he's working a lot, you know, he, uh, he's on sure. Billions now, right? Right. Some 12 years like a that. slave, right? Oh yeah, he was in that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, B Billions has been going for like five seasons. That yeah, has a follow. Yeah, and that was a tough role to take because that was supposed to be Philip Seymour Hoffman's role, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Then he yeah. died, and Paul Giamatti stepped in. So that's not an easy thing to do, you know. And let's sure. not forget the Amazing Spider-Man too. Oh, let's please um, forget that. <laughs> <laughs> he was the only good part of the movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's almost it's good that. He never got to go on and play that part again because that's really not a yes. good use of his talents. Yeah. Absolutely not. Where's Hope Davis lately? 
I mean, she's also on TV. She was just on that crappy uh, Brian Cranston miniseries, Your Honor. Hmm. She plays uh, the mob boss's wife. And, uh, you know, she's like Paul Giamatti. She's working. She's not wanting for roles, but she has never been nominated for an Oscar, which, again, I just assumed. I, I went to look up which movie was Hope Davis nominated for an Oscar for, and the answer is none. Well, you're talking about underrated. Like, I don't think you ever even think of Hope Davis when you're thinking of, like, actresses in that age bracket. And she's got a good body of work, man. She does. And, I mean, both of them... Again, they work steadily, and even if they show up in small parts, they're always doing great work. But neither of them have really had the chance to have a lead, uh, certainly not in a film, in a feature film in quite a while. Well, Giamatti, didn't he do that one that was on Netflix that was well-regarded like two years ago? That's true, with Catherine Hahn, um, the, uh, is it called Private Life? Um, Something like that. It was, uh, yeah. no, was it Nicole Hoffman? So. No. no. Hall of Cena? No, no. It, was, uh, it was not. But um, yeah, that was a highly acclaimed movie that um, it's uh, Tamara Jenkins directed that. I think I was a little let down by that movie because I had high expectations because it was so well reviewed. But um, it's actually sort of a, a Harvey Picard-ish character, this, this kind of neurotic New York. Well, in that case, it's New York and is but not working class, but not upper class, but it's sort of a neurotic intellectual and, you know, overthinking things and and being self-critical and all that kind of stuff in that movie. It's not a bad movie. Yeah. Hope Davis was great in Synecdoche, New York, too, speaking of neurotics. There you go. And I think she was nominated for awards for that, but not for an Oscar. Mm. Meanwhile, Sherry Springer-Berman and Robert Polcini, the husband and wife director team here uh, and writer team, they have had an interesting career, not really breakout hits here and there. I did like Cinema Verite, which was on um hbo which kind of was another narrative film about a real subject which was a family that pbs followed around in the 70s quote unquote the first reality tv show right and um they have a movie coming out maybe by the time this is released on netflix on april 30th uh things seen and heard based on elizabeth brundle uh brundage's all things cease to appear do you know anything about that that's like a like a thriller is amanda seyfried is the star of yeah. it and it doesn't look i mean it, maybe it'll be good but it definitely doesn't look like something that plays to their strengths. yeah they do a lot of different things right right and i feel like when they've done those different things it generally hasn't worked very well and that the best thing that they've done is cinema verite which is very much in the same vein as american splendor um so maybe branching out i mean i think the next thing they did right after this was like the nanny diaries which was just a dumb mainstream comedy so yeah they they didn't they didn't get you would think after winning sundance that's when you get the chance to really jumpstart the career and it just didn't really happen for them but uh you know obviously they're also still getting work so good for them i suppose and toby radloff the real toby radloff also still uh doing stuff I was almost, I, I would have tried to watch uh, Toby Radloff's starring roles in the killer nerd horror movies from Troma, um, <laughs> which are not, uh, if they were streaming anywhere, I was going to try to watch a little bit of one of them, but they're not. Um, and that, that actually come, those actually come before um, American Splendor, but he, he became a weird kind of star between that stuff and the MTV appearances. And there was a documentary about him called Genuine Nerd. From 2006, which also uh, it doesn't look like it's available really anywhere at this point, but he made the most of being Harvey Picard's buddy, I think. Good for him. Genuine yeah. nerd. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, and uh, big fan of Revenge of the Nerds. That's one one great moment that we didn't mention from the movie, but uh, the, the sort of discussion of the relative merits of that film. Yeah, I man. They see it. I love how, how worked up Picard gets. But Joy the... says, uh, I think everyone should see this, right? You know, it's the underdog <laughs> story taking on the bullies. And I could just imagine today a woman recommending that everyone see Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, a lot, a lot of other stuff going on there that we probably uh, wouldn't want to endorse anymore, or, or ever, really. Um, <laughs> but, but certainly a funny aspect of the movie, um, and Toby's, his sort of attachment to the idea of himself as a nerd, as his identity, uh, is amusing. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe we'll, I'll get a chance to watch The Killer Nerd. Killer Nerd and Bride of Killer Nerd. I uh, hope you from do. Troma. That, that seems like something I would see on your letterbox list. Well, yeah, Josh, as you know, I did watch Timmy Failure Mistakes Were Made, as I told you I would. So I feel like before the end of the season, you need to watch a killer nerd movie and we could talk about it in the epilogue along with Timmy Failure. That's quite a combo there. Killer nerd and Timmy Failure. Maybe they can team up someday. <laughs> um, I think this uh, legacy wise also, you know, between this and Crumb, which we've talked about. Um, both contributed to to kind of extra mainstream attention for underground comics, which is something that still pops up every now and then. I just saw at the virtual slam dance this year a documentary about Spain Rodriguez, who was another big figure in the underground comics at the time. And 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 Robert Crumb is is interviewed in that documentary as one of the main uh, kind of supporters. So still something that people mine material from. And 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 Crumb is still around, although he doesn't really. Uh, he lives his quiet life in, in France or whatever these days. Yeah, two points about that, as we talked about uh, in the Crumb documentary from 1994. <laughs> they play some of Crumb's music in, in this film, in American Splendor, yes. which is nice. And Spain Rodriguez, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the artists who drew Harvey Picard. There you go. You're probably right about that. I don't know that it comes up in the documentary about him. It focuses more on his original creations. But, but that was one of the things, is that all of these figures, whether it was Crumb or Spain Rodriguez, who had their own, you know, original creations as part of this underground comics movement? Picar managed to get them all to help him too. Right, and that, and that, the Fred character, who's Frank, was another one. I forget his last name, but Frank was one of the first underground comic uh, artists that there was in like the '60s as well. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, Picar had this sort of weird uh, draw for these artists to uh, to work on his Frank material. Stack. There you go. Yeah. And that that Spain Rodriguez documentary is decent. It's nothing like Crumb. It's not as fascinating, but it's a it's a good look at a another complicated figure. All of these 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 guys were all these these tortured artist types who maybe didn't treat women the best. Um, and that was kind of what was going on in the comics underground comics well, at the time. Well, I'm not going to judge the rest of them, but it there was nothing in this movie that made me think Harvey Picard treated women badly. He was just setting no. his ways. Right. He, he was more, he was very in his own head and sort of wasn't always considerate or realizing of the needs of others, whether those were women or men. Right. So exactly. That's, that's, that's just him, you know? Yes. Self-obsessed. Yeah. That is true. They were all yeah. self-obsessed, these people. Anything else on the legacy here, Jason? Uh, I'm ready for the Rob Schneider remake. <laughs> <laughs> Let's... Oh God! Um, it's probably gonna Netflix will bankroll that. They like Rob Schneider, right? They've got him and a bunch of stuff. 
Okay, so that is American Splendor, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and the Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. And goforjason.com. Needs a new artist or web designer or anything. We are at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Our uh, We had a great month of downloads, and we really appreciate it. So, uh, And we love all the feedback. Thank you, guys. Yeah, we uh, we may be Harvey Picard-esque misanthropes, or maybe just I am, but we certainly appreciate <laughs> everyone who's listening and uh, anyone who uh, hits us up on social media and gives us some uh, good or bad response, really, whatever you want to say. Um, and also, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com. At Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. If you want to uh, tell me something about my misanthropy and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, I mentioned it earlier, but I might as well do an actual plug for Wax Tracks Records where you'll find all the jazz music you need and uh, probably American Splendor copies upstairs somewhere. I'm not sure, but I bet they're there. Yeah, and the kind of place that Harvey Picar would have enjoyed. Oh, I bet he would be fighting with my dad on the daily. <laughs> What's coming up in our next episode, Jason? Josh, this next episode is the film of 2003. This is the juggernaut, the icon, the one and only part three of three of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. That is the best picture Oscar winner. So tune in next time for Return of the King. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.